Welcome back to Historical Fantasy. I'm Guinevere Lee. You are about to hear Chapter 2 of Lita and the Samurai. If you haven't already, please go back and listen to Chapter 1 before you continue. Lita and the Samurai by Guinevere Lee, as read by the author. Chapter 2, Through the Tori. The bamboo was thicker on the other side of the shrine. Everything on this side seemed different to Lita. The air smelled different. The muffled sounds of city life had been completely replaced by the whine of a thousand cicadas. She could hear a few birds twittering. The stone path was gone, too. It had trailed off into dirt, and then nothing. She was just walking blindly through the woods now. Just how big was this lot, anyway? It had only taken a minute to walk into the shrine, but quite a while had passed since she had left. She was starting to wonder if she was just walking around in circles. She sighed, reaching into her bamboo purse for her smartphone. Worst case scenario, she could just Google map her way out of here. She wasn't sure if turning back would help because she wasn't sure if she had been walking in a straight line. Hmm. She stared at her phone screen. No signal. She held it up to the sky, but knew that was as likely to help as throwing the damn thing on the ground would be. She put the phone away and started forward again. It was only a matter of time before the trees ended and the city streets would begin. Five minutes passed, then ten. Then she began to worry. Hello? Konnichiwa? She called out softly, then in a much louder voice, Konnichiwa! She didn't feel afraid, just annoyed. She wasn't the kind of person to overact or panic in any kind of crisis, least of all getting turned around in the woods. She was half tempted to climb one of the regular, sturdier trees to get her bearing, but that wouldn't be very pragmatic in a yukata. When she heard the voices, she smiled, relieved she wouldn't have any more wandering to do. She just wanted to go home and have a bath to wash the humidity away. It was a group of Japanese men, probably young from the rough and rowdy nature of their voices. They still sounded like they were off in the distance. It was getting dark, the sun usually set before seven in August, so she imagined it must have been around six. Her stomach was starting to growl and she decided she would stop at a Yoshinoa on the way home and get some gyudon, fried beef on rice. Japanese junk food, as she liked to call it. She could just make out the figures through the trees. They were sitting around a fire and the smell of cooking meat made her mouth start to salivate. Sumimasen! Excuse me, she called out, and saw some of their heads turning around in confusion. They all looked to be wearing yukata, so they must have been at the Tanabata festival today. It was rare seeing so many men dressed in yukata. Ah, uh, sumimasen, how do I get to Sendai Station from here? They were completely silent, staring at her with blank faces. Some looked confused or shocked or showed no expression at all. They were wearing yukata, but not the nice ones she was used to seeing. These were ratty, dirty, dark browns and washed-out blues. Some wore headbands to keep the sweat out of their eyes, and a few wore geta, but most were barefoot, their feet blackened. A pot hung over the fire, soup boiling in it. A few men had small wooden bowls and were eating, though they had stopped to stare at her. She assumed they had to be part of the festival, period actors or something. Had they just finished for the day and were having a barbecue? Why did they look so surprised? Foreigners were a fairly common sight. Sure, she got some double takes here and there, but they were looking at her like she was some mythical beast. Um, she felt uneasy under their stares. Had she said the wrong thing? Is Sendai Station close? The movement came all at once. 
Someone shouted something and they all suddenly came towards her. That's when she noticed the weapons. Swords and bows and spiked clubs. They grabbed them as they advanced and she moved backwards, shouting in surprise as they grabbed her. Two men held her while another ripped her purse from her. She screamed earnestly then as they pushed her to the ground. What the hell are you doing? They smelled like body odor and their fingers felt grimy against her skin. Some of them were laughing. She could barely concentrate. There were so many faces before her. She kicked at them as they bound her ankles and wrists in a scratchy cord. Once she was tied, the men moved away from her. Some just stood around and stared. A few others were going through her bag. Nanda no na. Okina hana yo. A man crouched down in front of her, scratching his stubbled face with black fingernails. Mega kirena iroda. She was stunned into silence as they gathered around and discussed her looks. Hana meant nose, May meant eyes. To the best of her understanding, they were debating whether she was ugly or beautiful. They were acting as though they had never seen a foreigner before. They were discussing the things that made her distinctly other. What Japanese person in this day and age had never met a foreigner? Oi, mite. The man holding her bag pulled out her phone. Nanda Korea. He turned it over in his hands and Lita felt just as confused as he looked. What was going on? She could believe these people were actors for Tanabata. Even when it wasn't Tanabata, she sometimes saw men dressed like samurai or in other Edo period costumes, usually leading tours or giving out flyers. Why tie her up? Why act like she and her phone were some kind of mystery? Was this some kind of reality show? She looked around for cameras, but all she could see were the men staring at her and her things, and the woods surrounding them, and the woods surrounding them. Her gut felt like it was being squeezed. How could they be surrounded by woods? She had been downtown only a few minutes ago. The man holding her phone muttered in annoyance and threw it over his shoulder. Another man grabbed for her phone midair, and as he caught it, his finger pressed the home button and the screen lit up. He called out in shock and let the phone drop, the screen shattering as it hit a rock. Her senses jolted back, and her eyes went wide in anger. Watch it, asshole! Lita called out, unable to stop herself. You owe me a new phone! A few of the men stared at her in shock. What is she saying? Can you understand her? Urusayo. Shut up, another man said, nudging her gently with his dirty foot. Don't touch me! She snapped, and the man grunted something under his breath. She saw the knife gripped in his hand and scolded herself. Don't speak, don't move. She desperately ordered in her mind. Just do what the mugger says. Wasn't that the advice always given? Most of the men had turned their attention to the phone, though. No one picked it up. They let it rest on the ground, the broken screen face up. She could see the time, 1804, bright on the screen. And a picture she'd taken that day of her and her friends. The fluttering Fukinagashi behind them. She should have gone home with them. What was she even thinking visiting that shrine? After a few seconds, the light of the screen went out and they called out in surprise. We should burn it. It's evil. One man whispered with wide eyes, Baka! Idiot! Another man muttered angrily, hitting the back of his head with his fist. We can sell it for a lot of money! He collected the phone, wrapped it carefully in cloth, and put it in a pouch hanging from his obi, which was really just a moldy piece of rope. Can we sell the woman? Another man asked, looking at her eagerly. Tabun. Probably. One of them shrugged. They had finished dumping out the contents of her purse, her makeup was thrown away. Some of it had landed in the fire. 
One of the men was rifling through her wallet, cards and money going flying. She swallowed her distress, trying her best to think rationally. She had watched enough episodes of I Survive to know the first and most important thing she could do was not panic. They couldn't be muggers if they weren't interested in her money. But what were they talking about? She felt too anxious. She was having a hard time following their conversation. They wanted to sell something. She had gathered that much. Who were they? They were destroying her things, so it couldn't be a TV show and they couldn't be actors. The thought that all of this was real gnawed at her mind like a dog with a bone. But she couldn't let the thought in. It didn't make sense. This was the 21st century. She was in one of the biggest cities in Japan. They looked like, well, bandits. Bandits did not hang out in a lot next to a shrine in 21st century Japan. So, what was going on? Night fell, and the men ate and drank. She watched feeling disconnected to the sight before her. She stopped asking questions about who they were, what was going on, or why this was happening. She had no doubt in her mind these men meant to do her some form of harm. The only thing that mattered now was how to get away. With her hands bound in front of her, it would be easier to untie the ropes and take off running through the forest. But there were always one or two men next to her, watching her closely, sometimes asking her a question, though she always ignored them. They drank alcohol, sake, she imagined. Sake, she imagined, from large orange-yellow gourds, and most of them were roughhousing or singing around the fire. No man was smart while he drank, and these men didn't look too bright to begin with. She felt a strange calm settle over her. If she could escape from her father, she could escape from these fools, too. A dozen action movies flashed through her mind as she thought about how she could escape. Some so ridiculous she almost found herself laughing. What did most women do when they were captured? There was the classic seduce your capturer and knock him out. But not only did that just seem genuinely impractical, the thought of trying to seduce someone who hadn't seen a bath in recent memory made her stomach turn. Men's escapes were always more interesting to watch, but most of them always seemed to rely on being imprisoned with someone else, claiming your cellmate was sick or even missing, only to surprise attack your guard, pickpocketing a key or getting some dumb animal to fetch it for you though in her case there were no keys or locks. Sometimes they would hurl insults at the guards, goading them into a fight, but she didn't think insults would bother these guys. She certainly didn't know anything truly shocking she could say in Japanese, not to mention the fact that there was just no way she would win a fight against anyone. She started to make a list in her mind, crossing out all the plans that had more chances of failing than succeeding. The thing that became the most abundantly clear was that if she wanted to get away, she needed to whittle down her number of guards. She could run from one or two, but more than that she didn't think she'd make it. She needed to wait. Short of someone wandering by and rescuing her, she was completely alone and probably only get one chance to do this. Watching the men was like watching a frat party get underway. With slurred speech and thick accents, she couldn't understand a single word they were saying. But none of that mattered. All she was paying attention to was how much they were drinking, and how slowly, one by one, they were slumping over and passing out. After a few hours, the camp was mostly still. The sounds of snoring far louder than the small group of men talking around the fire. She almost ran then, but they turned their attention towards her. They were gesturing and pointing, and although they made no move to come closer, their looks made her uneasy all the same. Just as they were about to fall asleep, as the sky began to lighten and she started to hear the sound of birdsongs, those men who had passed out first began to wake up. 
groaning and holding their heads in pain. She couldn't help but smile at their obvious hangover. A few got up, moving to the outskirts of the camp to piss against trees, smiling in relief as they did so. They didn't go back to sleep, but instead started the fire up again and started cooking something for breakfast. Looking over at her with toothy grins, one of the men came close enough that she could talk to him without yelling and bringing unwanted attention to herself. Sumimasen. Her voice came out like a whisper, and she thought he hadn't heard her, until he turned his head and looked at her in annoyance. Nanda, what? He was a short man, somewhere in his thirties. The top of his head bald, and his stomach extended into a small pot belly. His yukata was pulled open, and he grabbed his penis to take a piss. Lita did everything in her power to not wrinkle her nose in disgust, and instead tried to look up at him with wide eyes, trying to look as scared and helpless as humanly possible. Ito, um, toire ni kitain desu I want to go to the toilet, but... Eh? What the hell is a toire? Uh, she was stumped for a moment. Of course she didn't know what a toilet was. What was the proper Japanese word for it again? O, oterai ni kitai. I want to go to the lavatory. He looked at her like she was crazy, and having finished started turning back towards the fire. She pointed with her bound hands towards where he had just peed. Watashimo, onegai. Me too, please. So go, he muttered in annoyance. Demo, but... She felt like an idiot as she pulled back her yukata slowly to reveal her ankles, going slightly higher than necessary. She was groaning at how ridiculous she felt, but his eyes drifted down towards her legs, and his look of annoyance melted away. I can't walk. He looked around the camp, chewing his lip. The other men's attentions were focused on the cast-iron pot over the fire for the moment. Then he leaned down and reached towards her ankles. His fingers lingered on her skin and she did everything in her power not to shudder at his touch. Finally, he undid the ropes. She thought he might undo her wrists, but he just grabbed her roughly by the arm and yanked her to her feet. After sitting for so long, she felt slightly lightheaded for a moment. The ropes had been tight enough around her ankles that now her feet felt slightly prickly as circulation came back to them. He motioned towards her to go, but she shook her head. The sudden and visceral image of her being alone in the woods with this man was terrifying. She didn't know how to seduce and overpower someone. If she took a step forward, there was a very real possibility that this man would do something unthinkable to her. Her body was shaking, and for a moment she couldn't move. By myself, it's embarrassing. She tried to smile, but knew it must have looked like a grimace on her face. He looked like he was starting to get annoyed but he complied, grabbing her arm again and pulling her into the trees. They only went a few steps. She could still see the camp through the trees, and if the men looked over, they would be able to see that two people were standing there. Still, maybe that was enough. They were all hung over, and she would have the head start. Turn away, she asked, but he just looked at her, and instead she turned her back to him, looking out through the woods. The foliage was thick, but not so thick that a person couldn't get through. She took a moment to just stare at the trees in the dim morning light, wondering what the best course to take was. The man growled something in annoyance. She looked back at him. He was out of arm's reach. She crouched down. Under the yukata, he couldn't see her put one leg behind the other, getting ready to sprint. Someone in the camp shouted towards them, and the man turned his back and said something in return. As though that was the pistol starting her race, she took off running through the forest.
Thanks for listening. I will be back tomorrow with Chapter 3. For a complete list of all the chapters and when they'll be available, please go to GuinevereLee.com. Until tomorrow, stay healthy, everyone.